Well, welcome to New City Church. So glad to have each of you on campus and online today as well. This is the final message in our witness series, if you can believe it or not. It's part eight, time flies when you're having fun. And we talked about the book of Acts is really Luke's documentation. Luke was the author of the book of Acts. It's his documentation of Jesus's great declaration. And Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church. I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell aren't gonna overcome it. Nothing's gonna stop it. And so Luke is is documenting this journey for us, this great declaration of Jesus. And let me just give a little recap. If you've missed parts of the series or if you've missed all of it, you're gonna catch up here in two minutes, okay? Let me give you a recap of the series where we've been. We started in Acts chapter one and we talked about the ascension of Jesus and we said that our upward gaze has to become an outward witness. Our upward gaze must become outward witness, a, a mission to other people. It's not just enough to stand and look to heaven. We have to look outward to other people that God's placed us with in our places of business and our neighborhoods and, and everywhere that God takes us and see them as God's mission for each of us. Our upward gaze has to become an outward witness. And then we talked about leaning into the spirit, the Holy Spirit that God gives to us. And that happened in Acts chapter two at Pentecost that all believers were uh, given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we lean into the Spirit to receive power and giftedness to be witnesses powerfully in our city and in cities all around the world. And then we talked about this. We talked about you cannot proclaim, listen to this, you cannot proclaim what you do not possess. Do you remember that one? You can't proclaim what you don't possess. This was Peter's first sermon right after Pentecost, right after the giving of the Holy Spirit. He stands up and he begins to preach the first sermon in the the New Testament church. And we talked about all of our proclamation and our witnessing to other people in our various uh, ways and places that we go in life is all an overflow of what Jesus is doing in our own hearts. Witness is an overflow of as you carry a cup and it starts to spill over with what God is doing in your own cup, it spills over to, to people all around you. So you can't give away what you don't, watch this, what you don't have yourself. You proclaim what you possess. And then you remember this one, Wilson is not enough. We talked about the fellowship of believers in Acts chapter two. And after 3,000 people are added to the church, ironically, there's a section of scripture in Acts that talks about their community. You would think that would be the reverse, right? When it was a small group of people and intimate and you could know everybody, that that's when we really had good community. But it's after the church is 3,000 plus people that they experience this radical community. And we talked about how community has to be something that you step into. You've got to participate in it. And that Wilton isn't enough. We, we talked about 19 years ago, this movie called Castaway came out and we, we all felt old in the room 19 years ago that that movie came out and Tom Hanks is on this deserted island and he creates community because he needs it so much. And we do too. And if we don't have authentic community with other people, we'll create it in all kinds of different ways, but it will never, ever, ever suffice for the real thing. And here's the amazing thing, gang. If God is our father, If God is our father, then guess what that makes us? Brothers and sisters. Jesus didn't just give us the gift of himself. Of course he gave us himself, but he also gave us the gift of one another. So we've got to move from just rows into circles where we can know and we can be known. And we talked about the power of community and that we want to be a church here at New City that doesn't just have groups, that we're made up of groups, of communities of people who know each other and can know one another in that way. And then we talked about how demonstration sets up proclamation. 
The first miracle in the book of Acts that's recorded is in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John on their way to the temple. Uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they heal this lame man. And immediately that demonstration turns into Peter's second sermon and this, this incredible proclamation. And then there's something about that name. There's something about the name of Jesus. Peter and John are arrested and they, they sit before the council and they say, we can't help but talk about Jesus. We can't help but proclaim and witness to the name of Jesus. And we said, there is something about the name Jesus, even just speaking it now, Jesus. There's something about that name. There's power in that name, the name that is above every name. And then in the face of that, uh, that opposition, finally, the seventh message in this series was this idea of, of how the church responded to opposition. And it's a great model for us today of how we respond as a church to opposition, of people coming against us, of even experiencing persecution because of our witness. They did two things. You remember in Acts chapter 4, they came together. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends. They came together in the church, and they went to God. They came together and they went to God in prayer. And that becomes an incredible model for us as well today as a church to come together as a community and to also go to God in prayer. So that sets up our passage today, Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. That's where we're going to be today. If you have a copy of the scriptures or you have one on your phone, pull it up. And we'll get there in just a second, Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. But before we get there, let me give a little bit of context, just some backdrop of what's going on here, because there's a lot happening. It starts in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, with Luke saying that after all these things had happened, the church was together, and he describes it in this way in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, that they were of one heart and one soul. They're of one heart and they're of one soul. God has done something to, to knit their hearts together. And unity, guys, is a powerful thing. When you have a group of people that are together and they're of one heart and they're of one soul, powerful things can happen. And God longs for us to be unified as a church. Now watch this. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. We don't have to agree on every single thing. We don't. But God wants to knit our hearts together on the essential things that we must believe in together and that we must be united in. God longs to bless unity. When brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, God is pleased. And conversely, he's grieved when we disagree, especially on secondary things. Common struggle produces common people. Common struggle produces common people when you've gone to battle with somebody, when you've walked with somebody through the valley of the shadow of death, it knits your hearts together. There's a common bond. And that's what we see happening here by way of context. And the Bible says here that great power and great grace was upon them. And it's because they're unified as one heart and one soul. May that be true of our church as well. And then we see here, just by way of context, we're, we'll get to the passage, I promise, but, but so much is happening here, and, and God wants to protect this unity that, that they're experiencing as a church together, and, and that unity is challenged by a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. They were a part of the church, and they lied. They each lied individually, and they withheld from the church. They weren't of one heart and one soul, and God strikes them down. There's no easy way to say that. Acts chapter 5, God takes both of them out in a very striking way, a very powerful way. 
You might look at that and say, well, that, that's not the smartest church growth strategy to start striking people down in the church. But, it, but God wanted to protect this precious thing called unity. And really what Ananias and Sapphira did was they, they abused that unity. And God shows them the links that he'll go to to protect it. And when it says here in verse 11 that the church was afraid, it doesn't mean they were afraid of one another. They had a reverence for God. And, and, and so we're not meant to be afraid of other people, but we should have a fear of the Lord as Christians. We should have a fear of the Lord for his holiness, for his, uh, for his difference than us, that he's set apart from us. He's high and lifted up from us. And we see that on display here, that God will not be mocked. And he won't be today either. And then finally, just by way of context, the church is growing, it's exploding. And verse 14 in Acts chapter five, Luke says, more than ever, circle that in your Bibles if you follow along with me, verse 14, chapter five, more than ever. Because again, just by way of context, we know that after Peter preached his first sermon in Acts chapter two, and verse 41, it says that 3,000 souls were added to the church after that uh, sermon that Peter gave, the very first sermon. And then in Acts chapter four, verse four, it says that there were 5,000 men, not including women and children that were now a part of the church. So we're left to inference that there's 10,000 plus people strong that are now a part of the church. And Luke says here in chapter five, that now more than ever, meaning more than, than after Peter's sermon, more than after the number that's recorded in Acts chapter four, verse four. Now more than ever, men and women are joining the church. They're becoming Jesus followers and they're entering into this sacred community together. And the church is exploding. And it's not just being contained within Jerusalem. Look at verse 16 in Acts chapter five. It says that, that people are now beginning to bring uh, people from different villages and, and towns all surrounding Jerusalem and the name of Jesus is being proclaimed and people are being healed of every kind of sickness. The church is on the move. And in that context, let's catch up to our passage today. Acts chapter five, verses 17 through 42. This passage really is a summation of the first five chapters that we're covering in our series, Witness. It's a great one for us to end on because it really brings everything together for this first section of what's happening in the church. The church has gone from 120 terrified believers in the upper room to 10,000 plus plus people who are now bold witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's not gonna be able to contain them. It's starting to break out into other places. It's an incredible move of God. It's an only God type movement. And we've said here at New City that, that we wanna pray prayers and believe things that only God can do, right? Right? We want to pray and believe things that only God can do. Because if it's stuff that we can do, what, what is that about? It's about us, what our resources can do, what our strength can do, what our intellect can do. We want to trust and believe God for things that only he can do, where it's unmistakably a, a miracle, a work of God, a demonstration of his spirit and his power among us. So let's keep praying only God prayers. Don't you know that there were so many only God prayers that went into what was happening here in the church? So many people just like us who were praying for God to do what only he could do. So many people who were starting out their prayers now to him who is able. What a great way to start out your prayers. Now to him who is able, not me, not my friends, not my resources, now to God who is able, the only God. 
So with that, let's join in. Verse 17, let me read it to you. But the high priest rose up. In that context, everything that's happening in the church, the church growing and exploding, the high priest rose up again. His name was Caiaphas. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. Remember we talked about the Sadducees are the upper echelon of the Sanhedrin, the council. And the high priest would always be elected from that majority party. They're filled with jealousy. They arrested all the apostles, not just Peter and John this time, all the apostles, and they put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people, listen to this, all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. The angel comes and rescues them and calls them to go right back to ground zero, right back to the temple courts, right back to the heart of the religious institution and teach and preach what? The words of this life. If you're able to take some notes, write that down or circle that in your scriptures, this life. Before Christians were known as Christians, they were known as people of the way or people of the life. Jesus said it this way in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Christians were known as people of life. Everywhere they went, they were meant to be demonstrating life, speaking life. I'm sometimes asked now about our purpose statement. What does it mean to bring gospel renewal to our city and to our world? It means this, verse 20, to go and stand and preach and speak and demonstrate life to bring Jesus wherever we go, in our schools, in our places of business, in our neighborhoods, in our own homes, to, to demonstrate and to bring and to proclaim and to bring the presence of, of life that is Jesus wherever we go. That's what gospel renewal means. Because wherever Jesus is proclaimed and wherever the gospel goes forth and wherever it's received, new life happens. And there's a new life that can never get old. The only thing that never gets old, and that's Jesus. Go preach this life, the angel says to the apostles, and they go right back and they begin to do that. Ironically, the Sadducees, that ruling class party of the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees didn't believe in a lot of things. They didn't believe in the resurrection. That, that didn't work out too well. They, 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 they didn't believe in any of uh, the scriptural writings other than the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Testament. They didn't believe in anything else, any of the other prophets or Psalms or any of that stuff. They didn't believe in miracles. So when the miracle happens in Acts chapter three of the lame man being healed, they have no category to put this in. Where did you receive power to do that, they asked them. They don't have any construct to understand where this is coming from. It doesn't fit within their system. And by the way, if you have a belief system that is based on what you're against, you have a weak belief system. Christianity is based on what we are for. We are for life. We are for the new life of Jesus. Yes, we stand against things, but we stand against things because they are not what we're for. We are for things. And because we are for things, of course we take prophetic positions against things that are not of life. But we are for something before we're against something. The Sadducees are just against stuff. They're against miracles. They're against anything other than the Torah. They're against the resurrection. And guess what else they were against? This very group of people that arrest the apostles and the high priest who's questioning and all of this religious institution, guess what else they're against? They're against, they don't believe in angels. God has a sense of humor. Because guess who busts the apostles out of prison? 
You may not believe in miracles and you may not believe in God today, but God believes in you. You may not believe that you have an enemy called Satan, but he believes in you. We see right here on display God's power and his grace to demonstrate himself to people who were opposing him, which he still does today. He gives a miracle to the Sadducees to see that your construct, the way that you are seeing all this, your religiosity is keeping you from seeing the truth. And far be it from us that our religiosity would keep us from seeing Jesus. The, the passage continues here in verse 21. Let's follow along. So they're teaching life. God busts them out through an angel. Incredible things are happening. And now the high priest has come, and all who were with him, all the council, they come together, and they, they sent people to the prison to have the apostles brought. And when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison because guess what? They've already busted out. So they returned and reported back to the council. They're not there. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, nobody was inside. Verse 24. And now the captain of the temple and the chief priest, when they heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. And they wondered, this is, this is awesome, they wondered what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are now standing in the temple. They're teaching in the temple. And the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, because they were afraid now of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest began to question them. We go from chapter four, the, the council, the religious institution being greatly annoyed to what does it say now in verse 24? Now they are greatly what? They are greatly perplexed, okay? We're on this, I don't know where it is on the spectrum, but we're, we're from DEFCOM one or two, now we're at DEFCOM three. Like, we, we're increasing here. We've gone from just you're an annoyance to now we are perplexed. And they wondered this in verse 24. I love this. Circle this in your Bible or underline it, highlight it, whatever you gotta do to remember it. They wondered with each other as they're perplexed, what is going to come of this? What's going to come of Christianity? What's going to come of these Jesus followers who are witnessing in his name and doing all these incredible demonstrations? What's going to come of this? And I just want you to look around the room right now across all of our campuses and venues and just look around the room for just a second because this is a demonstration of what has come of this. 2,000 years later, across every continent this morning, the name of Jesus is being lifted up. And now some two billion people across the planet profess to be Jesus followers. We live in such an incredible time. Did you know that the Bible is on a course to be translated into every known language across the planet by the year 2033? Many of us will be alive when these words of life are translated into every single dialect and tongue across the planet. What's going to come of this? A movement that cannot be stopped. Not a religious club, but a family of forgiven people who claim Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. So what's the core issue? Why are they so greatly perplexed? Why are these religious people so greatly perplexed at Jesus? Verse 28 gives us an insight here. They say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to, here, here's the real crux of the issue. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
You're going to hold us responsible for his death. Now, now, here's the incredible thing about this. No truer words could have been spoken than verse 28. But it was God the Father that intended for his son Jesus and his blood to be brought upon each of us. Because it's only the blood of Jesus that washes us clean of our sins. So they think that, that, that the blood of Jesus is going to be on them for culpability and responsibility for his death, which it is on all of us. But God, the Father's intention was that Jesus' blood would be shed so that ours wouldn't have to be. That he would pay the price in our stead on the cross. This is a wonderful demonstration of the gospel here, and they don't even know it. Yes, Jesus' blood is going to be on you, but not for the reasons that you think. It's going to be on you to save you and not destroy you. Peter takes this opportunity, as Peter often does, that we've learned, and being questioned by the council to begin to speak. And in fact, he gives a little mini sermon here in verses 29 through 33. Peter and the apostles answer. They answer these questions of, why are you teaching the name of Jesus? We told you not to. We warned you not to. So why are you doing this? And Peter says, we must obey God rather than man. Some of you, that's the statement and the word that you need to hear today. And I don't know what exactly you're going through in your life, in your business, in your family, in a relationship or whatever, but those are the words that you need to hear today. Verse 29, Peter answering, we must obey God rather than man. Again, I don't know what that means in your life, but it's a strong word for each of us. He continues by saying, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. You don't believe in the resurrection, but the resurrection happened. And you killed this Jesus by hanging him on a tree. Remember, we talked about how you can't have good news unless you also have what? Bad news. Here's the bad news. You put Jesus on the cross. And the truth is that all of us did because of our brokenness and sin. But here's the good news. God exalted him and placed him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. And Peter says in verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And the scripture says here, when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. Peter seizes this opportunity, this moment to once again talk about Jesus, to present the gospel, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within him, which we must do as well. And he also gives us this incredible truth that we have to, when faced with a, a decision, we have to obey God rather than man. We believe as Christ followers, as a church, that God has placed people in authority over us. Romans 13 reminds us that. Paul says that God places authorities over us. But when authorities who have been placed over us cause us to do something that God tells us not to do or forbids us from doing something that God clearly tells us to do, we must obey God rather than man. When they heard Peter's mini-sermon, the Bible says that they go from being greatly annoyed to greatly perplexed, and now we're at DEFCON 5. Now they are what? What's the word? They're enraged, verse 33, Acts chapter 5. They're enraged. They can't even see straight. Have you ever been enraged? Have you ever been so full of anger that you just can't even think clearly? That's what is happening here. Why are they so mad? And why do they want to kill them? That's what it says here. They wanted to kill them. And guess what? These are the same group, this is the same group of people that, that sentenced Jesus to death. They have the right to do it. They can do it. And they want to do that to the apostles. They want to end it all right here. 
We've warned you. We told you to stop preaching and witnessing about Jesus. Now we're going to, to penalize you. It's going to cost you your life, or we're going to end this movement right here. Before I go on and tell you the rest of the story and what happens, let me say this, because this is a, a great and necessary application for us out of here. For those of you who struggle with anger, or you felt this way before, you've been enraged before, you've been challenged in this way, you can't see straight or think straight because of your anger, most often anger is linked to control. If you struggle with anger in your life, and many of us do, if you struggle with anger, I would challenge you to think about what that anger is linked to. Most often, anger is linked to someone or something that we cannot control. Not that any of us have ever tried to control people around us <laughs> or circumstances around us. But oftentimes, when we find ourselves not being able to control other people and not being able to control circumstances, we're filled with anger. And that anger builds and builds and builds. And if we're not careful, it turns into rage. And I want to say this because it fills our headlines every single day. We live in a very angry culture, a very angry world. And I think oftentimes that is based on people feeling like their worlds are out of control. And in a world that feels like it's out of control, here's my, here's my word to each of you. In a world that feels like it's out of control, we've got to come back and humble ourselves in front of the one who has the whole world in his hands, who is in control, to come to the place where we surrender and say, I am not in control. For those of you, again, this is very practical. For those of you who really struggle with anger, and then once you get angry and you fly off in a rage, then you're filled with regret. And that cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. Let, let me just plead with you to ask yourself the question, what is this linked to? What am I trying to control? Who am I trying to control? And allow your anger and your frustration and sometimes the words that are said in anger or the actions that are done in anger towards the people that oftentimes you love the most. Am I right? Allow that to move you to a place of surrender to say, I'm not in control. It's not my job to control other people. In fact, it's not my job to control this world. There's only one room, there's only one place there's only one posture to be in, and that is in a posture, in a place, in a room, in a situation of surrender. We've said it this way before, but it's worth saying again. The throne of God is not a two-seater. Okay? You don't have a place on it. It's God's and God's alone. So what happens next? Verses 34 through 39 tells us. Luke records this here. They're enraged. They want to kill them. And a man steps on the scene named Gamaliel. He's the hero of this story, if you will. God uses him in an incredible way. He's a Pharisee, the scripture says here in verse 34. He's on the council. He's a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people. And he stands up and he gives orders to put them in, the apostles outside for a little bit. You guys go outside and wait. That's what he says. Let me talk to these guys. And he says to the council, men of Israel, take care Take care what you're getting ready to do. You're getting ready to kill these guys in your rage, but you better take care. For before these days, there was a time where a man named uh, Thutis came up and rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him dispersed and nothing came of it 
Gamaliel reminds them. Verse 37, then there was a man named Judas the Galilean, and he rose up in the days of the census and drew some people away after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. He's giving them a history lesson. Verse 38, so in this present case, with these Jesus followers, these people of the way, these people of life, in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it's gonna fail anyway. But listen to this, verse 39. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In fact, you might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. We need more Gamaliels in this world. Gamaliel is, a, is uh, in the party of the Pharisees. And this is important because remember we've said the Sadducees were the upper crust. They were the upper echelon of the Sanhedrin, the council. The Pharisees are the lower class. They were usually given the remedial jobs. And yet Gamaliel is a man who is esteemed and valued and honored by all people. And we need people who can be respected by all parties and all viewpoints who can be a reasonable voice in the room. We need more of those people in this world. And may they be Jesus followers who are reasonable people. Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, let your reasonable, Philippians 4, 5, let your reasonableness be known to all men because the Lord is at hand. Be reasonable. Gamaliel is a respected rabbi and he intervenes and God uses him to, to save the apostles in this instance. He's a voice of reason, if you will. But he's also, he's also, some of you know this, he's a preview of what's to come. He was the teacher of Saul who became Paul. We'll read later on in our series, Acts chapter 22, Paul says, when I was Saul, I trained at the feet of a man named Gamaliel. God used this man in an incredible way. What's incredible to also think about is that although Paul was younger than Jesus, they were probably in Jerusalem at the same time, multiple times. And God used Gamaliel in an incredible way in Paul's life that would carry on the church. Even though Gamaliel was a rabbi, even though he was a part of the religious institution, he still was a reasonable person. And in this case, God used him to intervene. Let me say this just by way of application. If you have a belief system that will not tolerate careful and respectful debate, dialogue, and discussion with people who don't agree with you, that's terrifying. As Jesus followers who, who lift up Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life unashamedly, we still should be able to be in respectful conversations, discussions, and debates with people who don't agree with us. When we're not able to, what we become is holders of religiosity and our own ways instead of carriers of God's truth with open hands. And remember, we're not here to spread churchianity. That's what God's called us to. This isn't churchianity. We're here to spread Christianity, the name of Jesus. So a question to ask here, a good application, as we see this reasonable man come in and speak reason, God working through him, even as a part of the religious institution who didn't see Jesus for who he was. Don't misunderstand. But he still was a, a voice of reason and God used him. A good question for each of us to ask in this is, 
is the hill I'm dying on or the hill I'm getting ready to, to persecute or have someone else die on, is it really worth it? Is it, a, is it a purpose thing or is it a preference thing? You wanna know what most churches divide over, even within the body of Christ, what most churches divide over? Secondary theological issues, meaning not essential to our faith. Who is Jesus? Who's the Holy Spirit? Who's, what about the Bible? How do we become a Christian? Essential things that we should absolutely hold on to doggedly. Most of the time, churches split over secondary items that we should hold very loosely and music. Those are the two things that so we, call, we call the worship wars. And I look forward to being in heaven and there being one band. And I don't know what the preference or style will be, but I know that we'll sing with one voice and we won't argue or complain about it. We need to ask ourselves the question on all these hills that we're ready to die on, is this really a purpose thing? And the older that I get in my life, there's very few of those. Very few hills that, I, that I'll die on. I'll die on the hill for Jesus. I'll die on the hill for my family and friends, for, for our church together, but very few things that I'm gonna die on with issues or secondary theological things. I'm gonna hold an open hand and say, is it, if it is of God, I'm not gonna be able to stop it anyway. And if it's not of God, it's gonna die out. It's not gonna come to anything. Let's finish here with the name. I'm out of time. Let's finish here with the name. Verses 40 and 42. We'll finish the passage in the series right here. So they take Emiliel's advice and they put them, uh, they bring them back inside. They've been put outside. Remember, come on back in here, guys. And the scripture says here in verse 40 that they beat them. Now they lay hands on him, on them. This is different. They lay hands on the apostles for the first time. They beat them and they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. What's the definition of insanity again? Doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Stop speaking in the name of Jesus, they say, and they let them go. And when, listen to this, verse 41, and when they left, when the apostles left the presence of the council, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, the Christ, the anointed one, is Jesus. The council charges them again not to speak, but they say, we can't help but speak. They beat them, which meant they would strip their clothes. And this is the, most likely the, the beating that was prescribed in Deuteronomy, which is 40 lashes minus one. And the way that that would happen is you would take two across your back and one across your chest. And that would happen 13 different times until you got to 39. This is what Paul says, I had that happen to me five different times. There were people who died because of this beating. The apostles take this beating, two lashes on the back, one across the chest, 13 different times, and they leave the presence of the council, and what are they doing? They're rejoicing. They're rejoicing. How, how is that possible? Because joy is not circumstantial. Happiness comes and goes, guys, but joy is permanent. Because joy is linked to our identity in Jesus and nothing, nothing, nothing can take that away from us. So they rejoice because they're Jesus followers and they rejoice for that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus in that way. And they continued to teach in that temple court, the very same court they were arrested in. And they went from house to house proclaiming the name 
of Jesus. And I love that that name, the name of Jesus, is the last word in our passage. It's the very last word in chapter 5. They were proclaiming and they were teaching and preaching that the Christ, the anointed one, is Jesus. The one who said, all the way back to the beginning of the series, the one who said, but you will receive power. You're going to receive power as Jesus' followers when the, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very end of the earth. And boy, were they ever. And may we be the same new city. To God be the glory. I hope you'll join us next week as we begin Easter at New City Church. We're going to start with a, a message about the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. So please come back next week for that. And then after Easter, we're going to jump right back into the book of Acts. So mark this page and read ahead in chapter 6. We'll start right here in chapter 6 with a series entitled Beyond. And you'll see why it's named that way when we get there. Let's pray together. God, would you help us to be, would you help us to be as a church witnesses of the way and the truth and the life, Jesus? And this week, this week, would you help us to bring that life, the life of Jesus, wherever we go in this city and in this world? As we come to this table today, to your table as one church, maybe we be reminded of your love and your mercy that never fails, and your hope, and your unending, never quitting grace. Give us the wisdom to know what you're asking us to do from your word today, and give each of us the courage and the faith to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.